The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, March 23rd. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Megan Carrick. Megan Carrick is a pediatric occupational therapist and clinical director of Kids in Sync in Chicago's north suburbs. Megan specializes in sensory integration and the use of the DIR model and has been extensively trained in these models. Megan has been sensory integration and praxis tests certified through Western Psychological Services. She received her DIR certification in early 2009 through the Interdisciplinary Council on Developmental and Learning Disorders. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, hi. Well, Megan, how long have you been working with children? Uh, I've been working with kids all my life. (laughs) My parents had 14 children, and I am the oldest girl, 10 after me. But I started working with children with special needs in 1998, uh, as an aide in an occupational therapy clinic and started my undergraduate program then and then went on to get my master's and now I'm working on my Ph.D. So you've been working professionally with kids for over 10 years, but let's go back a little bit. 14 children? <laughs> yes, my parents were Irish Catholic and they they just kept having one right after the other. So. There's three boys older than me, and then I have then myself and my sister, and then nine more boys, or I'm sorry, six more boys, and then three more girls. So, yes, I was a regular babysitter. <laughs> Everyone healthy? Everyone was healthy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Megan, speaking from the perspective of both your professional career and your control group growing up, <laughs> have, have you noticed any general trends in children over the years? You know, I think... The general trend is that each child is unique. <laughs> That's the general trend. Our nervous systems are as unique as our thumbprint. And so there are certainly general trends of what a lot of people talk about as um, the underreactive profile or the overreactive or hypersensitive profile. But even within those different profiles, there's such um, extreme differences. So... For instance, an underreactive child can be an underreactive child with low tone who doesn't have a lot of ideas about how to get sensory motor input but needs the sensory motor input to get organized, and so they look more passive and a little bit more lethargic. And then there's the underreactive profile of a child who has lots of ideas and is sometimes unsafe, and those children are very active and constantly looking for new and more unique ways to get sensory motor input. 
but both of those children would be considered an underreactive profile. The sensitive profile children tend to um, look a little bit more similar in that they tend to be, if they're sensitive to visual or tactile or vestibular input, they tend to be more um, on the periphery. They tend to be the children who uh, like to control the environment so that they can avoid surprises and um, they often rely on language as a nice way to engage the environment. So they might be the child at the birthday party who's talking for a long time with the parents versus going in and jumping on the trampoline or playing the chase games. And then there's another common profile that I think is often misunderstood of a child who has some sensitivities, but then they also have some underreactive needs. So if I can just sort of describe that really quickly, a child who really is underreactive to vestibular input, they, the vestibular system is our primary activation system. It's what helps us feel the most organized the quickest. And children who are underreactive to vestibular input but are sensitive to an auditory or a visual or a tactile or a combination of other kinds of more external stimuli, they are often these kids who puzzle us because they can look different from day to day, sometimes looking like they're needing lots of intensity and other days looking like they can't even bear the thought of it. And what I often tell parents is that those are the children that seem to present like they're at a state of internal conflict where they really want to move, they want the sensory motor experience, but the thought of being bombarded by some of these other stimuli is too much, and so they avoid the very thing that they really need mm-hmm. to get organized enough. So what goes into the senses? Like what's the difference between the way our organs process information and the way that the corresponding section or sections of the brain process information, and where can this get short-circuited? That's a great question. The sensory systems are the five systems that we learned about in school, touch, sound, sight, taste, smell, and um, I don't know if I said sight. And then there's these other two set, uh, systems that are a little bit more complex, and we really don't learn a lot about them unless we go out and try to find information, which is um, what a lot of OTs tend to do. And that's the vestibular system, which is an organ in our deep in our inner ear, that tells us about gravity, directionality, and our sense of midline. And um, we can also infer that uh, it tells us about speed and things like that in terms of in relation to our head in space, in our environment. And the other system is the proprioceptive system, which tells us about effort and physical um, effort specifically through our muscles and our joints. And so then there's the organs that we have for digestion and heart rate and, you know, I mean, our heart and our lungs and our stomach and our guts and all those things. And you can think of that as a sensory system, too, uh, thinking about this internal read that we have. We know when we're hungry. We know when we have to void. We know when our heart is racing too fast. And that's our nervous system talking to us, too, through the organs that we can't see. But essentially... The way that our brain gets information from our organs in our middle cavity or from the outside world through our sensory systems is all just a bundle of electrical circuits working together. And some of that happens through our spinal cord, through the 
um, neurons that are built up going all the way from the tips of our fingers all the way through the spinal cord and up into the brain. But then there's a great deal of that information actually being processed right, you know, from the neck up because we have these cranial nerves that process and send a lot of the information through sight and taste and our facial nerves and hearing and vestibular. Those 12 cranial nerves are connected through another bundle of electrical circuits that we refer to as neurons. And so there are a lot of places for it to get short-circuited. It can get short-circuited on the surface. A child may have um, hypersensitive tactile nerves just at the base of their fingertips or on the back of their arm or all over their whole body. It can get short-circuited in the cerebellum where the largest bundle of neurons is housed in the cerebellum and it's sort of thought of as our relay station for information to be sent to different parts of the brain so that when you take in an image, you're not just having that information sent right to the occipital lobe of the brain, but it's also being relayed in the cerebellum and then being sent to other parts of the brain so that we can make sense of it. The challenge that a lot of these kids face is, first of all, we can't see where the short circuit is. Luckily, we know that the nervous system is always in a state of flux and that the brain has what has been most recently referred to as plasticity, so we can build new connections in these electrical circuits of neurons. We can build new connections to make things happen more efficiently and get information read more efficiently. But there are many ways that it can be compromised depending on where the upset is, and a lot of that is really dependent on clinical observation and watching a child. If I work with a child who is very clumsy and also underreactive, then I might start thinking about the cerebellum because the cerebellum also helps with balance and with some other things, but I'm not a neurologist or a neurosurgeon or anything of that measure, uh, but it just helps us to think about where are maybe some of these areas of challenge. Now, if that child is also low tone and presents weak, then I'm first going to really focus my attention on what I can actually impact in my session, which is strength and control and endurance and helping the child gain a better sense of midline and things like that. But if it's cerebellar, then, you know, we'll, we'll, that will come out soon enough in terms of if the child doesn't get better. Um, so there's a lot of different places it can short-circuit. There's also the corpus callosum in the brain, which is this huge bundle of nerves that has uh, the responsibility of communicating the right and left sides of the brain together so that we have good bilateral control and coordination so that we can process some kind of language piece of information in the language part of our brain. I'm simplifying this. But then also process the perceptual component of that on the right side of the brain and it goes into motor and sensory processing and all these other things, too. And so many of us as occupational therapists who are working with children with special needs, you know, there is a population of children that we see who have cerebellar or corpus callosum anomalies that we can also address in the context of experience and helping the brain, as I was mentioning earlier, gain new neuronal networks so that these um, kinds of information get expressed more efficiently and processed more efficiently and relayed more efficiently. And then, of course, sensory integration isn't just taking information in, but it's also responding to that information. And we call that an adaptive response or a maladaptive response, meaning that is the message that's being sent back 
to react, and that can be a physical reaction, a verbal reaction, a uh, affective, you know, response, depending on the demand of the sensory stimuli, is the response uh, appropriate? And is it well-managed? And there are a lot of terms that occupational therapists use, and one of them is modulation. All right, and we'll pick up with modulation when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back with Megan Carrick. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Leadership is a destination, but how do you get there? More importantly, how do you maximize your power and influence and develop more leaders in your organization? Learn from proven leaders and proven practices. Join Drs. Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler for Leadership Development News. This program will help you develop the next leaders in your organization, balance your work life, manage your boss, and manage yourself. We'll feature cutting-edge interviews with industry experts and authors. Leadership Development News, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on The Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Megan Carrick on the topic of sensory integration and sensory processing disorders. And, Megan, before the break, you were talking about modulation. Yeah, so modulation is a fancy word for our ability to filter information. And when we think about modulation, it is our ability to filter the information that we allow to come in and make sense of. And it's also our ability to modulate or monitor or filter how much we give back. So an example of modulation would be that you walk into a party and you maybe arrive 20, 30 minutes after most of the other guests. And so when you come into the room, it's a little bit daunting. There's a lot of sound, a lot of visual. There's going to be people bumping into you all night. And so you sort of take a moment and just sort of take it all in. And over time, you start to habituate to the music, to the touch sensation, to the other conversations that are going on around you. And you can really filter out 
all of that information that's not necessarily relevant to the moment because you're having a very deep conversation about desperate housewives, okay? <laughs> and if we have poor modulation challenges in terms of what we take in, one of the things that happens with kids is that they have too strong of a filter and nothing gets in. And they're just sort of like, it's never intense enough. And other children, everything gets in. And they can't filter or um, dismiss anything. They, Their nervous system and their brain are working together to tell them that everything is relevant. But for most of us, we can filter and and dismiss a lot of information as long as it's not relevant. And then when we hear our name from across the room, we tune into that, and then we shift our attention based on that demand. Um, the other component of modulation is monitoring or managing our response. So if a child bumps into you in line, you don't turn around and hit them. You turn around and you sort of look and try to take in the information and figure out what happened. You have to read the situation. But for many of our kids who can't modulate their response, they give back a response that's too intense, and they might turn around and push that peer over or interpret that that action was done on purpose and was malicious. And for other children who have the opposite modulation challenge, they don't even feel it. They're not aware that they've been bumped into. They have a hard time picking up on environmental information to know to shift their attention. And these are the kids that parents will often say, you know, I'm calling him 20 times before he responds to me. (laughs) And that's a modulation challenge where it doesn't feel important enough. Their nervous system is not sending messages to the brain, and the brain is not then able to send messages back saying, this is important, we should respond. So do many things that look like behavior problems actually have their roots in sensory integration disorders? I would say that yes. And one of the reasons that we know that is if you look closely enough at the child, meaning that you look at their family uh, unit, you look at the culture of the family, you look at the child's siblings, if you see that there's a child who has a lot of behavior challenges but his siblings don't have these same behavior challenges, then you have to start asking yourself, what's unique about this child that these parents have set up a pretty structured, warm, you know, very nurturing environment and the child has all these behavior challenges, then we have to wonder what is it about this child that's unique, their own individual differences, this is part of the DIR philosophy, that if we can really look at those child's individual differences, we can better understand what the, where the behavior is coming from. Megan, you've mentioned the family again, and, and again, I'm going back to, it's just fascinating to me that you had 14 kids in your family. <laughs> um, did you notice these kinds of behavior problems um, among kids in your family or children at your school growing up? Do you think that there's been a change in the uh, the amount of behavior problems that we're seeing these days or the number of children who are having sensory processing disorders? No, I have noticed a shift, and I will say that, you know, for me, if you looked at my family, if, if an occupational therapist came in and, and assessed all of my siblings, including myself, I think they would see uh, there tends to be two profiles in my family. There tends to be the um, mixed profile of the child who is both sensitive and underreactive. And then 
that's me. <laughs> and then there's another profile of primarily underreactive children. And even when I was in grade school, I had a really hard time. I was the kid who thought every auditory and visual piece of information was relevant. And so I was having a really hard time focusing my attention and shifting my attention to what was most relevant in the classroom, but then also out on the playground. And then I also had trouble um, with regulation, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, because I needed intense vestibular proprioceptive or what we might call sensory motor activities to really keep me regulated and organized versus some of my siblings who um, they were just underreactive in general and, and they would take these risks that were just outrageous, like you know, jumping off of the deck that was a story off the ground or, you know, finding crazy swings to hang from in trees and things like that. And I would just watch them and think, that's insane. I'm never doing that. Um, so there was that piece. Now, when I was growing up, my parents just said, go outside and come back for lunch. And there was a lot of freedom to explore sensory motor-wise. And we looked out for each other and we could go to the park and we might ride our bikes or we might go to the pond or things like that. And my parents didn't have to worry about some of the things that have culturally become big-ticket worry items for our families nowadays. So kids are spending more time in front of TVs. They're spending less time outside. They are spending more time uh, engaged in more passive activities and less time in these larger or gross sensory motor activities. So one of the other things that I've noticed is that a lot of the kids I work with, they don't have a lot of really unique or um, exciting new ideas about how to use their body, and they don't have a lot of good problem-solving strategies. And it's not to say that every child is like this, but it's a pattern that I'm seeing more recently and more frequently. And one of the things that happens when your kids are with you all the time and they spend most of their time indoors is that, and this is something that a lot of people I've talked to are seeing, there's become this cultural shift where parents, are sort of um, feeling the heat of, you know, my child is not, you know, they're they're not taking a lot. One of the things that kids are doing more often, too, now, is they're spending more time in organized sensory motor activities. So they're doing a lot of classes and groups, and, you know, they're in five different sports at one time. Um, but going back to some of the behavioral shifts, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's this almost, um, discomfort in your child being uncomfortable sort of thing that's happening where parents are finding ways to keep their kids happy. I hear from a lot of parents, they just want their child to be happy. Um, and so when they get stuck with something, there's been this shift of, you know, we just want to help them be happy. So one of the things that's happening with kids is they're having a harder time problem solving independently. And I think part of it has to do with Kids are spending a lot more time with their parents, a lot more time at home, and there's lots of room at home for fighting with siblings or, you know, doing things that are dangerous or unsafe or things like that. And so we're seeing this shift among a family culture of uh, children who might have some challenges with problem solving or sequencing or some behavior challenges because it's just not a part of the family culture to kind of wait it out and let them figure things out for themselves. And so sometimes there is that unique biological difference, but it's also sometimes coupled with this sort of new parenting approach of let's keep our child happy and 
if something starts to go wrong, then we come in and we might try to fix it. And it's not necessarily a bad way to parent, but I think there's a little disruption in this more complex way of thinking about problem solving and being able to organize where when we were kids, you know, you didn't get an adult unless somebody was bloody (laughs) or there was a broken bone or something. We just figured it out. We just had to figure it out. I don't know if that is answering your question. You talked about modulation and then mentioned regulation. What's the difference between this? Regulation is our ability to, in a simplified way, think about it's a state of homeostasis, both physiologically and emotionally. So when we're regulated, we're calm, we're organized, we're interested in the world around us, we're attentive, and we can really perform uh in terms of that communication that we have with the world, we can perform at our best or near best. When we're dysregulated, we either have a heightened level of arousal, a three-year-old who's very excited about riding the pony and is jumping up and down and clapping their hands and saying, I'm riding the pony, I'm riding the pony, or we're of that low arousal where we're tired and it's harder for us to think and our problem solving doesn't come as quickly and we're not organized and that might be what some people experience after lunch when a lot of their physiological effort goes to digesting their food and we spend more time sitting in the afternoon and we've been awake for so many hours and we sort of have that, what some people refer to as that after-lunch coma period. And so dysregulation can look many different ways. Dysregulation can also be a child who's had way too much intensity and they can't really process and tolerate a lot of intensity and they shut down, meaning that they disengage and they look very distant and they... um, maybe try to push out the rest of the world, and it can also be the child who's having a tantrum. So regulation versus modulation. Regulation is thought of as a state of arousal. You know, where are we in our state of arousal? And modulation is a process or an ability to manage both what comes in through our nervous system and what we give back. And this helps with attention, it sounds like. So how much of ADD or ADHD might be attributable to these sensory processing problems? No, that's a good question, and I think it's, an, it's a question that's been coming up since Ayers started talking about sensory integration and since ADHD became a title that we could use to describe sort of this cluster of, of challenges that children face. There's a lot of research that's been done and continues to be done. Um, Lucy Jane Miller is one of the leaders in um, looking at and comparing sensory integration to ADHD. She's out of Denver. And what we're really trying to do is is identify, and I shouldn't say we because I'm not one of the researchers, but the efforts are being put in identifying how often is it ADHD and a sensory processing challenge, and when is it just sensory processing and when is it just ADHD. Because these diagnoses are given in a subjective way, I might call it sensory processing disorder and someone else may call it ADHD. Because it's subjective and you can't take a blood test, right, we have to really be careful and be very thoughtful what kind of approaches we use. A child who, um, one of the things that Lucy Jane Miller has done is she did this research study, and I, I can't say when it was published, I apologize, but she did a research study where I think she called it the astronaut room, and she brought in children who um, were typically developing, 
children who had true ADHD, which how would they know it unless they look at that through the use of medication. When children have a real ADHD problem, one of the things that happens is if you give them medication, it works. Do you need me to stop? <laughs> you can finish your sentence. That's fine. Oh, go ahead, and I'll, and I'll finish it when I come back because it's complicated. <laughs> okay. We have a cliffhanger here, and we will find out what's going to happen when we come back from break on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Megan Carrick. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Megan Carrick. We're talking about sensory processing disorders. And, Megan, why don't you finish what you were telling us before the break? Well, we started talking about something else, so I may need you to remind me. (laughs) I don't remember where I left. Oh, ADHD. So what what this research looked at is um, if you provide just one stimuli, it's very rare that we would have just one kind of sensory stimuli um, being processed at a time. But... Because if you think about anything that you do during the day, it's, it's typically multisensory, okay? But she brought these kids into a research room, and she just had them experience one kind of stimuli at a time. 
So if it was vestibular, she would put the child in the chair and rock them backwards really quickly and bring them back up. And um, what she saw, she was measuring physiological response to sensory stimuli, and what she saw is that children who were typically developing, that they would have this spike, right? They would experience the intensity, but then they would re-regulate on their own. They would calm down on their own. Physiologically, they, they would get back to their baseline. And every time the stimuli was presented, the physiological response was decreased, and over time they would habituate. And ADHD kids who did well on the medication, you know, the children who get diagnosed with ADHD and with medication they look better, those kids looked very similar, almost the same to the children who were typically developing. So how they processed and habituated to sensory information with this one stimuli at a time looked the same. But the children who had sensory processing deficits and may also have a diagnosis of ADHD, there's often multiple diagnoses with these children, those children either habituated very quickly because they were underreactive or didn't habituate but kept becoming more and more physiologically responsive with each stimuli and each trial and would become dysregulated. And those are the sensitive kids. So what she was looking at is the physiological differences between these children who get diagnosed with ADHD and don't have sensory processing challenges versus the children who have more extreme sensory processing challenges versus the typical kids. So she had four groups, and it was a very fascinating study. And I apologize for not being able to tell you when it was published exactly, but if you do a Google search for Lucy Jane Miller, you'll find her website, and she has a lot of research on there. So it's a good website to go to. Have you known of children who were able to be weaned off of psychotropic drugs because their real problem was a sensory processing disorder and addressing that took care of the behavioral challenges that, the, for example, school was making the parents medicate the child for? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who have experienced the same thing, that happens all the time. And one of the things that often happens is parents will come in and they'll say, my child got diagnosed with ADHD three years ago. We've tried every drug. Nothing has worked. And someone mentioned sensory integration, and here we are. And then those children do very well. It's a little harder as they get older because we have less access to them during the day. They have less access to sensory motor activity the longer they spend in school. And the older they get, the recess changes. A lot of schools, I don't know about in California, but schools all over here, kids are losing recess in second, third, and fourth grade. And they're getting less access to sensory motor activity, which is supporting that shift in the nervous system. So when we get nine-year-olds, it takes a bit longer. But when you um, start working with four- and five-year-olds who the parents have tried three or four medications, uh, sometimes it really is a sensory processing deficit, but maybe the psychiatrist doesn't know enough about it or whoever the family is working with, the neurologist. There's a lot of people out there who still say sensory integration is silly and that it's not real. Wow, in my generation, kids knew the, intuitively knew the importance of recess. Right. <laughs> let's, let's go back to, to my generation and, and some, your generation, some, something interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you how, how old you are. I know I'm 40, 50, 60, 90 years older than you, but, <laughs> um, we were talking about parenting and I can't help but think that there have been some real, Biological shifts insofar as 
and I'm not talking about genetics, but the health, the health of the parents in my generation versus your generation. And we were talking about parenting. And I would tend to think that as the different generations of parents became less and less healthy due to environmental pollutants or whatever, that would affect parenting skills and it would also affect the um, the health of children who were born. Well, I think you're bringing up a great point. And I know you said not talking about genetics, but it does a little bit make us think about genetics, but I won't go there right now. One of the things that we have to really think about is, and there are so many people out there talking about this, um, how these environmental factors impact our brain functioning. That what happens is by giving our body what we how we breathe, you know, what we're breathing, what we're drinking, the kind of foods that we're eating, um, it really changes our brain function. And, you know, there's so many factors that have to be considered when we think about brain function because one of the biggest components is how does the brain, not just how does it impact neuronal networks and things like that, but how does it impact these different parts of our brain? You know, we know that certain... Um, different kinds of environmental influences can impact the frontal lobe, can impact cortisol levels, can impact, which is a stress, you know, stress response. And so, yes, and one of the other things, if you look around, you see that parents look maybe more stressed than they did when we were growing up, stressed about lots of different things. And we just live in a more stressful society right now. If we're all trying to balance more cortisol in our brain than parents did 50, 60 years ago, that will certainly impact how our frontal lobe functions to make the most, you know, the best choices, things like that. But all of that will change the genetic code that we pass on to our child. And so then the child may be born even more vulnerable from a genetic standpoint. That, I think, and is called epigenetics. It's mm-hmm. It's like... If you have um, blonde hair and, and blue eyes and fair skin and you go out in the sun scantily dressed for three hours at noon, mm-hmm. it's not um, the fault of your genetics that you're going to get sun poisoning. It's that you exposed were exposed to that environmental stressor. Mm-hmm. It's the way that the stressor makes your genes express themselves, but it's mm-hmm. not some faulty genetics or something. Right. That's right. Um, I don't know enough about I'm not a geneticist, but what I do know is that genetically the codes that we pass on to our kids may be shifted from what we were born with because we're always, that's something that can always be um, changed. We're, we're swimming in a, in a mire of pollution or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking, too, about making parents wanting to make their children comfortable, but let's talk about this in a real, um, in, in the context of sensory integration. How can a parent try to imagine what their child is sensing or feeling, um, discern that there are problems needing an occupational or sensory integration therapist, um, and do things to help their kids with motor planning and making them more comfortable in the, their environment or at home or in the community? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's so not a one-size-fits-all answer, <laughs> but I, I imagine you're not answer, asking for that. You know, oh. um, 
my I think my husband picked up the phone downstairs. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things to think about that might lead a parent to think, okay, this is not just my child's, you know, this is not just my child's differences from his peers or his siblings, but maybe it's something bigger. Things that uh, we can think about are how does the child tolerate and uh, go through or execute or engage in just everyday activities. One of the things that parents talk about often is, I knew there was something because things just seemed harder for him or things didn't seem as easy for her. You know, getting out of the house was always a chore. Um, I have uh, One of the things that parents often say is, it just seems like life is harder for him than it should be. Um, some of the other things, how does my, you know, my child cannot calm themselves down. They can't get themselves back to sleep. Um, they can't sit through a meal. You know, their peers are able to sit through circle time at Jim Marie class, and my little guy can't do it. Um, so there's like a, a long list of things. That, but in general, what parents are really talking about is, it seems like life is harder for my child than other children. And this is often really hard for new parents because, Everyone's telling them, don't compare, don't compare, don't compare. And I'm not suggesting that parents compare, but what parents will often say is, I always felt like it was a little bit, things were, just seemed a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. Um, parents often will say to me, I kept bringing it up to my pediatrician and they kept saying, you know, it's a, let's just wait and see. Every, you know, he's just a boy or this is just how he's developing. And I understand where pediatricians are coming from because they don't want to, uh, maybe overwhelm a parent and say, well, maybe you should go see a specialist or whatever. But I would strongly suggest to any pediatricians that are out there and potentially listening that if a parent comes and says that, then just ask them a few more questions, spend a little bit more time with them, and try to understand what it is. Because I think it's hard to go to your doctor and say, I'm worried about my child. No one wants to, you know, no one wants to say that, right? Parents don't want to say that, but if they're bringing it up, we should really listen. And they, the parents are the experts on the child. Barry Brazelton has been saying that for ages. The parent is the expert on the child, and we should really use them to get good information about what's going on with, with their kids. Absolutely. Great point. And we will be back at the Voice America Health and Models channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enza Medica. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on 
the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten, and Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. You've read the books, listened to the CDs, and gone to the workshops to learn spirituality. Now there's a way to help you live it every single day. The Spiritual Workout with Stephen Morrison. Call with any issue at all and Stephen will passionately help you see which of 15 universally spiritual concepts apply to your circumstance and how. Practice every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on The Spiritual Workout on 7th Wave Network. It's a practical path to a happier, more peaceful, and richer life experience. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Megan Carrick, and during the break, uh, Megan and I got onto the subject of potty training, and um, I observed, Megan, that it's been reported that some children may not be able to feel when they need to have a bowel movement, or um, some adult, adults have even reported that they don't know they need to urinate. They have to use a timer to tell themselves it's time to go. Yes, I think... When we, the first question you asked me, or one of the first questions, and we had talked about um, that internal organ uh, mm-hmm. system that allows us to know when we're hungry and when we have to pee or mm-hmm. uh, void our bowels or, you know, that our heart rate is running too quickly or that we can't breathe right. It's, it's this internal ability to read and understand and interpret what those feelings and those sensations are. And for children who... This tends to be a challenge with more the underreactive child in terms of not being able to feel it, that what ends up happening is they just start, you know, parents will say, he was watching a movie and he just started peeing all over the couch and he had no idea and he's four years old. When is this going to stop? <laughs> and really what's happening is they're just not registering that information. So whatever sensation is felt is not felt at an intensity that's strong enough that they cue into it. And this often happens, kids who struggle with cueing into those sensations, it often happens when their uh, nervous system is being demanded by something else. So it will frequently happen when there's TV or when they're playing or doing something that they don't want to interrupt. And even typically developing kids, parents will say, gosh, I have to like tell him to stop playing his video game and go to the bathroom because he's dancing there in front of the TV. We don't like to be interrupted as human beings in general. And um, 
for these underreactive children, it's even more difficult because they're not even queuing into it. And for the more sensitive kids, it's often um, what we might think about, and this isn't the case for every child, but it can be a little bit more of a control factor. You know, when you're sensitive and the environment is so unpredictable, there are two things you can control, what goes into your body and what comes out of your body. And so these children who are more sensitive and can't control the environment around them and can't control their peers or the dogs that are barking on them in the yard next door, what they do learn to control is they learn to control their bowel and their bladder and what they eat, and it can often have a negative impact on how they function in their family life. I guess you're really highlighting, Megan, um, that we sh- it's the most humane, merciful, and really practical thing to do is address root biological problems, not not just to holler at kids as the first line of defense if they're bedwetting or exhibiting an attention, but really try to figure out why these things are happening. Yeah, that is such an important point. I'm glad you brought that up. My philosophy, and I think the philosophy of many uh, clinicians out there who are working with children and families, is that we need to take a bottom-up approach. You can't just go after the behavior or Mm -hmm. the inefficient functioning capacity that this child might have, uh, and we can simplify it with fine motor. You cannot just look at a child's fine motor control because fine motor is the outcome of so many other things working well together. Mm -hmm. And so you have to really allow yourself to peel back the layers. If all we did was think about potty training or think about fine motor or think about not hitting, that's like trying to put the shutters on the windows of a house that doesn't have a cement foundation yet. You really have to go back to the foundation. Great analogy. Yeah, thank you. I'm a metaphor queen, I think. Um, But you really have to think about, like, what are the underlying factors that are allowing these external things that we see and can observe to persist. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Megan, when parents are looking for a therapist who's up to the task for helping children with sensory processing disorders, how does a parent find someone who's really qualified? You know, it's like a classroom. Parents ask me, where's the best district to live? And I say, it's really not about the district, it's about the teacher. Mm -hmm. Finding a good therapist is someone that the parents feel comfortable with, that the parents feel they can relate to, someone that the parents feel they can trust their child with, uh, someone that the parents feel like there, there needs to be a good match. I'm not a great match with every family. But I know sensory processing, I know early child development, I know about social-emotional development, I know about motor development and how all these things interact with each other, but I'm not the best match with every parent and every family and every child. And so that's the first thing I would suggest. But the other thing is there are a lot of therapists out there who say they're sensory trained, and really maybe they've only had sensory integration two-day workshop. Mm. I think that WPS has done a really nice job They have a website that you can go to and find SIFT certified therapists, and those are people who've had extensive training in sensory integration. Um, You can just ask the therapist what kind of sensory integration training they have. I think a really strong question for parents to ask a therapist that they find would be, tell me about your philosophy. Are you more top-down therapist or bottom-up? 
top-down, meaning that we just address whatever issues the child is having, like let's tackle this fine motor business, or more bottom-up, which is what I was just describing a minute ago, sort of peeling back the layers and figuring out what's at the real heart of the challenge for the child. And I think that clinicians who are open to really working with the parents as a team and working with the other team members, whether it's speech therapy or psychology or whoever else is on the team, because as I was saying a minute ago, Barry Brazelton um, has always talked about the parents being the expert on the child, mm-hmm. but we're the experts in our field, and if we can work together, we make this really dynamic, really rich team. And sometimes you might get a therapist who says, just let me do what I'm going to do and, you know, drop him off and I'll send you, I'll send him back with you in an hour and we'll figure it out that way. I don't know that that's the best approach, you know, especially with children who are young and the parents are spending most of their time with the child. You know, we're not the experts on the child and we don't know what um, kind of things these parents are facing unless we talk to them about it. Are there any websites or books that you suggest? Um... I think that the, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the clinic right now, but it's out of California, the the new sensory integration in the child that was just sort of the 25th anniversary of sensory integration in the child that was just put out by um, Pediatric Therapy Network, I believe it is, out of California, they've done a really nice job making that a very easy-to-read book. And if parents have questions about sensory integration, there are lots and lots of books out there, but I think that one would be my first recommendation. And then they could use other books to sort of simplify or make a little bit more sense out of the material in that book. That would be my first preference. So that's called Sensory Integration in the Child. The original author is Jean Ayers, and it's just been updated and sort of made a little bit more uh, layperson friendly in terms of the language that's used. The Child with Special Needs is a book that Stanley Greenspan and Serena Weider wrote that highlights social-emotional development and how that plays into individual differences and the unique differences of the child and their social-emotional development and their relationship capacities. So those are sort of my two Bibles that I use as references frequently. And then there's lots of other information out there that I think parents can talk to their therapists about or talk to other families Um, because families tend to be really great resources for each other, and that's how I typically get most of my referrals is from other families. Mm -hmm. And let's end on a a happy note about success stories that you've seen. Megan, are you seeing um, most of the kids who get to spend an optimal amount of time, and what would that be in sensory integration therapy getting better? I think, well, really quickly, if I can correct you, we don't really refer to it as sensory integration therapy, but occupational therapy that adopts a sensory integration model. Okay. Um, it's just sort of this way to think about it's really occupational therapy, and we just uh, use sensory integration theory and the model of practice to support our therapy. But um, children get better quickly in terms of how they process sensory information. If you provide them with, this is what I often tell parents, if we can provide a meaningful activity in the context of a meaningful relationship that's therapeutically dynamic so that we're really addressing what this child's unique individual differences are, then we can make really rapid change and it will help the parents develop home programs and things that will work for their kid just across the board. Very cool. Well, Megan, thank you for sharing this really helpful information. Thank you for having me. This was fun. 
And to our listeners, Megan Carrick will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference in Chicago in May, as well as over 150 additional great presenters. Please visit Megan's website at www.azmckids.com. For more information about the conference, please visit www.autismone.org. We also have been letting listeners know about cutting-edge therapies for autism from Skyhorse Publishing, available for pre-order from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Information about this book can also be found at the Autism One website. My guest next week is Dr. A.J. Russo talking about gastrointestinal issues. For any questions about this program, please email me at tiaranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enza Medica, and to our listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enza Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.